Hi everyone and welcome to Marketplace Jungle where we explore the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Brought to you by eChameleon, I'm your host, Jesse Ragg. Today's guest began his marketplace journey on the playground, selling secondhand phones to supplement his pocket money. More than 20 years later, Eddie Latham is now using marketplaces at scale as a way to enable international expansion, both for his own business, Majority Audio, and for clients of his agency, Velocity Commerce. Majority Audio recently won the Queen's Award for International Trade, and Velocity helps companies such as Rab Clothing, Britta, and Sony to manage their own marketplace presence. In this episode, expect to learn what Eddie's thoughts are on the increasing number of marketplaces available to sellers, what barriers face marketplace sellers when expanding internationally, and how to overcome these, how selling on marketplaces helped prepare majority to add a B2B arm to their traditionally D2C business and enable the next step in their journey, how you can emulate the private label approach to optimizing your product listings when your inventory is too large to deal with individual SKUs, and much more. Eddie, thanks very much for joining on today's episode of Marketplace Jungle. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Eddie, we obviously like to use this medium as a way to explore the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Now, I know obviously you've built a couple of businesses off the back of your success on Amazon. But today I'd love to talk about your history a little bit in the world of marketplaces outside of Amazon and also where you see the marketplace space taking us. Before we jump into that, could you give us a little bit of an introduction as to who you are and where you've come from? Yeah, so I'm Eddie Latham. I'm the founder of Velocity Commerce. I guess my marketplace journey started probably when you were still at school, Jesse, I don't know how old you are, but I think you're younger than I am. So yeah, I'm now 37. I founded the company that I work in today or founded today about 10 years ago. But actually, I started selling on eBay when I was in my teens. So when eBay was um, the wild west of, of black markets online. Um, so yeah, I used to buy my friends old mobile phones. And this is when we're talking about the early Nokia days at the playground, you know, for 10 quid. Sell on eBay 30, 40 quid and have more pocket money than the rest of the playground put together. So that's how I started. I then wow. went on to university and sold various things on eBay. I remember once going to, to Thailand in the university holiday and coming back with bags and bags and bags of clothes. Again, had more lunch money than most of the people at university too. So that was really nice. I managed to pay my way through university selling on eBay. And I guess I left university and this was in, what year was that roughly? About 2005, 2006. Actually, it was slightly later than that because I was quite rubbish at university. It took me a while to graduate. Uh, too busy selling stuff. So yeah, I graduated in the middle of a recession. In 2007, 2008, and I was studying, uh, studying economics. So it's particularly difficult to get a job as an economics graduate in the middle of a recession. So I eventually found a proper job, put my eBay selling to one side. And then I realized very quickly that selling on eBay is actually one of the best proper jobs you ever have. So promptly left my job and then started selling on eBay again. So I got a job working for, for RacketanPlay.com, who at the time, Rakuten was going through an interesting transition. So Rakuten um, bought uh, with their, because Jap- Rakuten's Japanese marketplace, they bought Play.com in the UK, which Play.com traditionally was a media reseller. So selling DVDs, those sort of things. And Rakuten is a pure marketplace, the biggest marketplace in Japan at the time. I'm not sure if they're quite the biggest today. And they're part of the global expansion. They bought Play.com. So Play.com, when I started working there, they employed me to help the transition from, from retail to marketplace because I'd sold as a reasonably small seller on eBay for a number of years. And eBay was the only pure play marketplace in the UK at the time. So I offered a different perspective. And that transition for Rakuten didn't go particularly well. But I actually started the business that I run currently alongside my day job. And I was quite transparent with the people at Rakuten that I was doing it. because I thought they added an extra dimension to what I could offer in terms of advice about how we could best structure our marketplace. So yeah, that was about 10 years ago now. I've added the company. So we, in 10 years, have grown dramatically. So 
um, started with £3,000 and selling from my garage alongside my day job. In that time, rented small warehouses, big warehouses and various different things. So today we're a couple of things turned over about 25 million. That's built of our, our own brand, which we launched about eight years ago. So two years into running the company. So it's a brand called Majority. It's a home audio brand. And then we also offer a content management service to other brands, managing different marketplace channels for them. And also retail some other brands products exclusively on different marketplaces as well. So it's a really interesting perspective, right? Because I think one of the biggest gripes that many marketplace sellers have is when a marketplace competes alongside their own products. And as in Amazon, for example, selling the same selling products alongside the sellers on Amazon. And many brands or many retailers have an issue with this, particularly when it's for products that they're also selling. But I think especially from the agency perspective, it actually gives you guys a really unique perspective and it gives you a really unique position to be able to test everything before you do it for your customers or to be able to... I mean, with, with Majority in particular, you've done an incredible job of building the brand. I think I saw that you won the Queen's Award as well, mm-hmm. which is an incredible achievement. So congratulations for that. Queen's Award for International Trade, which I think is, you know, is, a diff- is, is one that they're all quite difficult to win. So I'm not saying one's better than the rest of them, but I think that's quite, yeah, it's quite a nice one to win because international expansion can be so difficult for brands. And it's obviously so vital for a domestic economy. So. so how did you do that? How did you succeed with your international expansion so well that you won the Queen's Award? And did marketplaces um, play a role in that or was it through your B2B business? Or so our business today, so let's just take majority in isolation because that's the part of the business that won the award. So 20 million um, ish a year turnover, slightly more than that. That's split almost a third equally between UK, Europe and the US. I think that our brand is more established in the UK because we've got a longer trading history here. You know, initially, we were only selling the brand in the UK, so we've got eight years worth of experience here. So the, so the brand has gone. The brand has evolved in a way that UK, we're now sold marketplaces. Amazon's still a big part of our business, but yeah, multiple marketplaces. And also into sort of traditional retail, so sold in Argos, Curry's, Very, et cetera, et cetera. Internationally, we're way more marketplace focused because we don't have the same market penetration that you need to get into retail. You know, you look at Europe, don't know exactly, but let's say 300 million people in Europe. We're only selling as much as we are to 60 million people in the UK. So of course we've got more market saturation here. So you know when you go to retailers in Germany, we're still like a relatively small brand. In America, it's even worse. You know, in America we're again 330 million people, let's say, and we're only selling the same as we are in the UK. We're you know a very small fish in a very very big pond. Whereas in the UK, you take certain categories, digital radios, for example, um, second best selling brand by volume. Um, soundbars, third best-selling brand by volume, best-selling by by value, and that's across the market. And we've done that by being, I think, very aggressive. I guess we're a challenger brand. Um, And I always say that our biggest competitors are our supermarket and retailers' own brands. But we were one of the first people to take that and sort of, I guess, package it in a nice way. I always think the retailers with their own brands, they almost try to undersell them because it's in their interest. Again, it comes back to a conversation about you know, retailers in general, not just Amazon selling against the sellers on the platform, even in retail, take Argos, for example, they have their own in-house brands, Bush, Alba, those sort of brands. They're in the electronics market anyway. They're trying to almost undersell them because they know as it, you know, as a, as a pound, as a pound margin, they're going to make more money if they sell you a, a Sonos item than they do a lower value one. So I think that they never really have given that the whole effort. I guess when we're trying to take this entry to mid-tier level brand, we're trying to do it in a way that we're not scrimping on quality and customer service and delivery of the product, you know, making sure that it's well packaged and well pre- presented, which is something that no one seems to do. But I guess most of these brands that are making supermarket and, and retail their own brands don't have the economies of scale maybe to do that. Whereas when we're taking a full market perspective of that, 
and we're able to leverage multiple different channels, then we've got more of a vested interest in making sure the products and the way that it's presented is done well. Well, I mean, you've got you've done a good enough job at getting a sound bar into my living room. So I'm well aware of the quality of the product. I definitely bought that over a cheap little alternative. So they're good quality product and you're getting the praise that you deserve because you also get featured in a lot of articles around best budget sound bars and best budget headphones and earbuds and all these sorts of organic quality-based rankings, which I think is something that you just couldn't pay all the money in the world for. Yeah, that's gone full circle though. You know, you look at before Amazon built a marketplace revolving around reviews and customer reviews and customer feedback, you know, you look at the transition between marketplace. 20 years ago, eBay was running the most successful marketplace in the world. And that was at a time where the customer was concerned they weren't going to receive an item. We didn't have faith. You know, we were sending off checks to people halfway across the country. They were cashing them. And then you would cross your fingers. They would send you a product. So eBay made a market around sellers being accountable for posting items this is why they focus predominantly on seller feedback mm. and they forgot about the, the product feedback whereas amazon created a marketplace where they were posting out the items and they created fba or they're putting so much pressure on the sellers to post the items and it was this evolution of the marketplace where people start to think yeah i'm gonna get the item because if i don't the marketplace is going to refund me so amazon made a review system which wasn't seller focused like the ebay review platform it was it was product centric reviews where the seller was agnostic it doesn't really matter because it was backed with an amazon seal and they started making that product focused reviews and using that as the backbone of selling the item and whereas now we've evolved this position where you know before marketplace before the ebay seller focused feedback and then amazon the, the product focused feedback is that before those times we had you know you'd go to the shop you'd read a magazine you know in the electronics you'd read the what hi-fi magazine you'd work out which one's good you go to your local curries the guy in the shop would sell it to you because you believed everything he said because he was the font of all knowledge you know that was what we had before ebay's feedback system now it's gone full circle where no one really believes you know product feedback from from customers anymore you know there's been so many stories about negative manipulation now we've got a combination of you need to have good seller feedback and a good seller reputation you need to have good product feedback and you also need that prehistoric um you know feedback from you know different publications and you need your what high fire awards and stuff because it's so competitive now you need to tick all of those boxes because if you're not um someone else is so yes we've got we've worked hard at getting good pr um between products but it's almost no, all those things feed in together, you know. You'll only get in Argos if you've got good PR. You only get good PR if you're in Argos. And it's a bit like trying to make those things work in unison. And I know I always say that the more shop windows you're in, the you know, the more the more visibility you get for your product. So a product being in retail is going to help your sales on marketplace. Your product being on marketplace will help your sales on retail. It's just about being in as many eyes as possible. I think it's it's tricky for for a lot of advertisers to combine that logic with the necessity for trackability because how do you put an roi on exposure yeah i think the you look at supply and demand the demand for you know i refer to it as like black hole marketing you throw the money down the drain who knows really what comes back is so low now you get a fantastic roi but it's something that's completely trackable everybody wants that yeah, everyone wants to be able to you know, especially as most of the people that have got big budgets, you know, are big companies. And at a big company, really, all you want to do is avoid getting sacked. So the fact that you can go to your you can go to your boss and say, I spent this much and I did this much, is, you know, you can say exactly what the return was. Whereas, you know, throwing money down a black hole, if things start going south for the company and you've just been, you know, investing in that sort of marketing, um, you know, it's going to be difficult for you to justify 
Mm, it's very it's thinking literally of black holes I, I think about all the advertising on the london underground and i wonder how or if that's ever measured and other than the you know maybe you notice a bit of internet traffic picking up a week after that's gone live it's it's never really completely measurable but the ROI is probably fantastic i think that most of the time that marketing probably doesn't work because it's the wrong product I think mm. understanding your product and knowing the sort of marketing that's going to work for you is so, so important, particularly for startup companies. You know, you might have, you know, you you might have seen, you know, it's impulse based purchases, you know, like what do you always get on London Underground? Vitabiotics, you know, uh, mattresses. Taking apps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's certain sort of products, you know, that work. And when you're starting out, you think, oh, my God, yeah. I really remember X or Y from the underground, but yeah, it's completely different to your, you know, your well, sort of products. I wondered that when I saw, and this is a little bit off topic now, but I saw recently, I think it was big commerce were paying for some adverts in, uh, in and around London. And I always wondered if who they're advertising to with that, because it's B2B, it's a B2B product, right? And I'm not so do you know what I always think whenever I see those adverts and I'm scratching my head, I think, oh, they've got some money from a VC. Yeah. They've got <laughs> to have this money. Yeah. And they've come in and they've gone, Last week, we had no money. We really had to look at what we're focusing on. This week, we're just going to go out and spend it all. <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. It's, it's like the, the guys with the uh, with the biggest expo booth at, at internet retailing events and things like that. Yeah, and they're sponsoring the event and all the rest of it. I'm like, wow, they're really... They need to hit a number and they need to hit it quick. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes you can see if it's, in a, if it's in a land grab scenario, if you like, you know, you need to be the biggest, you know, the big one we've had recently is, you know, the aggregator boom in, mm. in the marketplace world. And you think, okay, well, there's probably not going to be space for everyone at the end of this. Yeah, you can see why they went out and tried to buy as many brands as quickly as possible. But I think that that whole experiment didn't leave many people with a good taste in their mouth, if I'm honest. Mm. I think the next one of those is going to be the marketplace boom because... Now that you've got technologies like Miracle and, and Marketplace are from Australia, it's very easy for retailers to add on a new arm to their business where, okay, they won't, they have to sacrifice some margin. You know, you, maybe they get to keep 15, 20% of the revenue that comes in, but they can very quickly add potentially millions of SKUs without any risk of having to buy those products in or, or having to worry about the logistics side of it. You know, you've got B&Q and Decathlon and MediaMarkt here in Germany and anyone who's anyone that has a big name that is going to be getting traffic anyway needs to be, to be so careful about diluting your brand though this is what i think and this is what i say to everyone you look at people that we've always had dropship haven't we mm -hmm. and the difference between marketplace and dropship is very 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 small you know it's 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 a different color of the same thing yeah and i think that for brands i think that it ekes desperation if you try and retrofit a marketplace into an existing retailer unless it's done, you know, true to your values or in a systematic way. You know, you look at marketplaces that have failed and, you know, have worked at Play Rakuten that, you know, didn't last very long in the UK. We never really appeased our USP. We never really, you know, we never really branched out successfully from that media customer, which is a declining market. Because we went for a bland, oh, we're going to, we're going to do everything. You know, we're just going to be the next biggest marketplace in the UK. Mm. Yeah. I used to laugh, you know, that in some means I probably shouldn't have said this, but you know, we used to, yeah, but there was a certain arrogance, I think, when Rakuten came to, to the UK because they were the biggest marketplace in Japan. So people were like, well, it's going to work because the biggest marketplace in Japan. I'm like, yeah, but our competitors are the biggest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, our competitors are eBay, our competitors are Amazon. You know, we need to try and find a niche for ourselves. And I think for all those people that could relatively easily, from a systems perspective, retrofit a marketplace into their business model, 
That's fine. That's the easy bit. But it's about either, you know, focusing on your core and protecting your brand, you know. If Boots are putting a market based on Boot and they start seeing secondhand cars, would I want to go there to buy some medicine for my kid? from a marketplace saying second-hand cars, they might be able to produce a bit of revenue, but the long-term effect of that wouldn't necessarily be sustained to their brand. And I think there's great danger, particularly in times where retailers are finding it hard in traditional bricks and mortar and stuff, is they don't stay true to their core and it doesn't actually help anything other than the short term and the long term. They do lasting damage to their brand. Especially when it, when there are so many options to sell on. And now a, a marketplace seller who, or an online retailer who has a successful Amazon business is inevitably investing a lot of hours every week in keeping that Amazon business going. They're keeping their product data up to date. They're managing their ad campaigns. They're dealing with support cases and everything. And when they look at extra marketplaces, the biggest question is always going to be, do I have to, if I'm adding a second channel, do I have to double that amount of work? I'm curious from your experience with majority and also with your agency hat on, do you have a bit of a feeling for how much of a work, how that workload can be spread out because obviously no extra channel is going to be an amazon as you've just said it's like that classic analogy isn't it or you know the first page in the business studies textbook is do you do you stick to the markets that you know you know and sell new products in that market or do you take existing products to new markets and i think that of course there has to be a combination of both but mm -hmm. i think that amazon you know you look at the you know amazon Amazon 10 years ago was the prize fighting marketplace. You know, it was cheaper than everywhere else. It was cheap to sell on there. You know, when we were taking our majority products and we were predominantly eBay and Amazon at that time. And 10 years ago, we tried to get them into retail. We spoke to HMV, Treasury Retailers, and they were saying to us, yeah, well, we want 40% of margin. We were like, we, there's no way we can do that because we're selling on Amazon. And Amazon are taking effectively 2 3% in postage and 7% in seller fees in the electronics category. No PPC, that wasn't a thing. Mm. It's 10%. We're thinking, you want 40%, we're selling at 10%. Whereas, you know, you fast forward to today, Amazon is the preferred place for most people to shop. And Amazon are milking that. Now, Amazon's margin now, we're speaking to, to Argos. Argos on 35% margin. We're going, that's easy. Yep, mm -hmm. fine. Because I'm paying, I'm paying product, paying money to get product to Amazon. I'm paying storage at Amazon. Yep, I'm paying higher seller fees than I used to be. My total cost of advertising on Amazon is ten percent, and all those sort of things. And now you look at other channels, whether that be marketplace or whether that be retail, and you're like, it removes my reliance on Amazon. Amazon is competitive because Amazon is taking such a big chunk and I'm still being very price competitive. But I don't think those other, you know, I now look at other marketplaces and I think I, I can price more aggressively on there because their take out of that transaction end to end, maybe not a headline level, but end to end is nowhere near what it is from, from Amazon. So, so it's not about being able to sell your products at a higher price. It's about thinking, you know, what is the total cost of operating on that channel? You mentioned FBA. Is FBA your main fulfillment model outside of the UK? Or yep. have you outside considered a 3PL? Have you looked into that as an option for you? Or? So we have it as a backup and we do use it, um, but we don't use it that it's not our preferred method. Yeah, Amazon, we're, Amazon, we're, we're FBA only. Because you mentioned, obviously, that you're maybe not as saturated in, in some of the other markets as you'd like to be or as you are in the UK. Mm -hmm. And other than... Other than time, what are the barriers that are stopping you? That are stopping that from happening? The barriers stop us from ha from from reaching from, that, from mirroring that saturation that you've got in the UK. Yeah, I think that it does take it takes time, but not necessarily man hours. You know, person hours, should I say? Uh, in time, but it takes. You know, we've always relied on marketing as putting a lot of products in people's homes, and let them have a good experience, and, mm. and and wanting people to come back for more. Which I think, again, is one of those black hole sort of marketing. You know, give people a good experience. Um, and they'll keep on shopping with you or they'll tell their mates to shop with you. I think that 
channel expansion and language barriers has always been quite difficult for us. You know, is translating them, you know, the multiple different languages across Europe. This is why almost the US was a revelation to us. We were like, you know, just replace the S's with Z's and, and we're there in terms of translation. So, yeah, that was a bit easier. But it's also about taking time to understand the nuances between the markets. You know, the products that sell well in the UK don't necessarily translate. You know, you look at our average selling price in Germany, for example, compared with the UK, and it's more than double. You know, I always say that, you know, people buy electronics items for generations in Germany, whereas the UK, as long as it lasts its warranty period, you know, you're sort of happy. So yeah, it's a completely different quality of product. And it takes quite a long time to realize that. And I guess as a small business that's grown organically, you know, you know to go into a new market and invest in new products is expensive. The last thing you want to do is get stuck with a load of stock. So yeah, it's about finding our feet in that various marketplace and then working out how to scale it up. I mean, the obvious one is the language barrier has always been quite tricky. I guess there's also, as you say, there's, there's really something to being a British brand that resonates with your British audience, it's obviously something that you can't necessarily replicate directly. Uh, you know, it's not like you can go and market that it's American made and, and also made in Germany. I, there is obviously something for the, you know, if you can put the Queen's Award on your American mm-hmm. um, advertising, then that's obviously something that Americans would probably find quite endearing. And How relevant is that? Though? I'm not too sure. Yeah, endearing perhaps, but... Is that enough to sell? Know, when you look at a country where I don't know what the, you know, how many what the percentage is exactly, but, you know, there's a small percentage of US people that have even got a passport, you know, so, uh, you know, people like to buy local generally, you know, that is the thing. It might not be, people might not be the number one priority, but it's definitely their preference, you know, in most cases. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how well British brands travel. You know, you look at German brands, I'd say German brands travel a lot better than British brands do in the categories that we're selling in, Hmm. not necessarily in all categories, but, you know, I don't see many people in Germany driving British cars. Um, (laughs) There's there's more minis here than you'd think, although I don't know if that counts as British anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just made them. The Germans made them work. And exactly. <laughs> a bit of British heritage on them. Yeah. So along, alongside your your own um, D two C business model, you've also got a B two B operation going um, for with distributors in in specific countries. Can you tell me a little bit about how you run that along and how that grew where that came from is that something that you actively sought out or did people come to you and say hey we want to resell your products or yes that is in its infancy in europe we are selling on bowl.com through a distributor quite often in europe because it's quite logistically it's quite difficult for us to operate with the physical presence in certain countries and stuff we put it into a distributor in that area so like for greece for example we're selling to a distributor there and they're selling on um, either different platforms or marketplaces within that territory um, for us. So we're sort of extending our leverage, but we provide them with the assets and stuff and they manage that fulfillment customer services. So that's one way that we've done it, but that's quite sporadic. We quite often do, so we're selling into Australia, for example, we sell to an Australian distributor. They quite like the brand that is not really front and center in the country, I think because it gives them a little bit more flexibility. So they almost treat it, some distributors as their sort of exclusive in-house brand. Mm. You know, let's say if they're not ordering massive quantities, they piggyback on the back of one of our production runs. We do them country specific boxes and then they have, you know, a relatively well designed product, you know, that um, hits all the marks without them having to order huge minimum order quantities or go through the development that they've done. And also it's a brand that if people Google it in that country, that has got the awards behind it. So that's worked relatively, relatively well for us. It's almost like a advanced version of a white label. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Without them having to do anything, it's a turnkey solution that mm. you get an exclusive brand. So yeah, our distributor in Australia is distributing our products exclusively. They're treating it predominantly as their own in-house brand, mm-hmm. which is good. It gives them a little bit of protection. 
And then they get like a very well polished white label product with our branding on. And that's a really nice way of being able to get into into Australia because obviously, if you're going to be trying to shipping ship from the UK, you consumers might be waiting far longer than they'd be used to. Because I mean, ten years ago when it was only eBay in Australia. Aussies were happy to, or, you know, they almost expected that they'd have to wait three weeks for the product to arrive. But now yeah. there's so many marketplaces there. And obviously Amazon's been there since a couple of years that this next day mentality has also sort of set in over there as well. Yeah. And returns are horrendous. In electronics, we're working on a roughly about, you know, 10% is the industry standard on returns. And if you've posted something to someone in Australia from the UK and then they need to return it, I mean, you're writing that off and trying to absorb that cost into the retail price is difficult. You know, you start to be very uncompetitive very quickly if you've got to, you know, if you've got to basically throw 10% of your product in the bin or ask mm. the customer to throw it in the bin. So, yeah, it's really, it gets really, really difficult. That's why being local is so, so important in most instances for electronics. But I think especially in the electronics industry as well, where things like plug sockets is a factor, it's obviously mm. beneficial. You know, those Australian plug sockets are no good to you in, UK, in, in the UK. So you might as no. well have them stored in Australia, and we've always focused on the ugly end of the electronics market, and by that, the things that are difficult to ship. So we generally go after bulky products with plugs on it because mm-hmm. it's less competitive than your headphones. You know, I always say, you know, where there's a pain, there's a profit. You're almost like if you want to come up with a business that you can make a margin, write the list of all the businesses you don't want to go into. <laughs> yeah, all the things that are really awkward, high returns, plugged on, so different territories, certifications really difficult. They're big boxes, so you need to work out how to ship containers. That's generally where the margin is. But it means that you've got to do a bit more working out. You know, you've got to get your ducks in a row. Whereas, you know, the opposite extreme to that in the electronics category is, is lightning cables for iPhones, you know, power banks, because it's like, it's a generic, it's a completely generic item that is so uniform. You know, anything that's sold on, it's a light, it's got an iPhone adapter on one end, it's got a USB type A and it's a meter long. It's like, I didn't, I don't need to tell you anything else about that product, really. Yeah, There's not really a huge amount of point difference, <laughs> and you'd be able to buy it without even a picture. Um, so easy to ship internationally and worldwide and stuff. So but it means that generally those are really competitive. So that's obviously given you a lot of opportunity to to figure out a lot of the day-to-day hurdles, the operational issues that many brands face. And that leads nicely into, obviously, Velocity, the agency where you're helping brands to to deal with this side of things so alongside helping them to manage their marketplace accounts what what is it the like what's the message to a brand that's coming to velocity for the first time well the thing that we always well, think that brands are most interested in talking about when they're coming to us with their with their business as it stands currently is is what we've done with majority i always say to them bit tongue in cheek is that we've managed to build you know a pretty not a dominant, but, you know, a competitor in the electronics industry, you know, almost worldwide in the home audio category out of nothing, you know, quite literally out of my garage. If we're speaking to bigger brands about trying to maximize the opportunity on marketplace in whatever territory is, I always say, yeah, you've got a decent brand. You know, that's relatively easy for us to manage because we've done it out of nothing, you know, specifically brands that have poor content haven't really necessarily given it the edge because they're reliant so heavily on brand direct traffic they've done all the hard work for you and we just say if we just try to have a bit more of an agile approach to to marketing your products and you try to do it more like these private label sellers that are going to the nth degree when it comes to content trying to squeeze every little last ounce of conversion if we try to do that with your well-established brand then that's a winning formula and that has worked very well for us generally we only deal with larger brands we don't deal with startup in our agency we've got 25 ish are there any Um, that you're allowed to name 
So we deal with Nextbase, which is like a, a Dashcam brand, which sold um, all throughout Europe a relatively dominant brand in the UK in the Dashcam market. Uh, we deal with Rab, the outdoor clothing brand. Cool brand. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. We're dealing. Uh, we're dealing with Arlo, which is uh, Department of Netgear. It's like their home security type products. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a relatively nice company. And all those accounts we come to them really, and we try to, I guess, with any you know, with any good working relationship, especially in the B two B area, you try to pair what you're good at with what they're not very good at. So we just take like quite a holistic view of what their accounts are doing on various market bases and try to say, well. You know, this is where we think our skill set matches your you know, lack of skill set and try to take a total overview because quite often people come to you because they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Do you so work just, with any of your competitors? Like you, as in other agencies? Or, uh, no, as in other, other audio. Companies. In any category, we try to take a, so say someone in the top five and we try to only work with them. So yeah, okay. we're quite transparent if it's anyone. In audio, yeah, we do work with some other audio brands, but these are high-end audio brands whose content on marketplace is very far away from what they have on their own website and what they have on retailers websites this is a bit like the conversation with rab was about them investing so heavily in their website which is beautiful and they've got such strong brand heritage and brand messaging like you know they're still repairing people's um sleeping bags from 20 years ago that have been you know up every major peak in the world and stuff and it's like that does not get conveyed on your amazon content yeah um, i had tony preedy from frugo on an episode a couple of weeks ago and he said and I'll try and quote him, I'll probably butcher it, but he said something along the lines of quality of the data that you've got on your website only makes sense in the context of that website. If you then try and send it to a marketplace, that context is lost. And I think that's so true, and especially, and you see it especially with a lot of brands that are dealing with marketplaces for the first time, particularly bigger brands where you know, normally they're the one that gets to say, this is how it works. You know, if they're dealing with their retailers or if they're dealing with distributors, they're the powerhouse. They get to say, you want to work with us, these are our, these are the rules of the game, and then they come to an Amazon. And I mean, you saw even you know the what happened with Nike and Amazon when they tried to you know bash each other down on who gets to decide the rules of the game, and even Nike couldn't win that battle. So any brand that's going on Amazon or any marketplace, and that's the crux of it. It needs to be to content needs to be amazing everywhere. I mean, yeah. we're we're running out of excuses for why you know brands, you know, big brands have bad presence anywhere really you know it might be you know you can lean on your brand and your brand direct traffic and all the rest of it and people know the brand people know that product you know sonos people know sonos it doesn't matter but you know there's so many occasions where you go on to you know more niche avenues where you need to have that content from across the board you know if you're not going to someone else is going to so you need to really really focus it gets tricky when you end up with brands not being quite sure how to sell on this particular marketplace and they'll just sort of throw whatever random data they can find in so that it's enough to get it listed. You know, sometimes you'll see Kaufland listings where they've got the product skew in the title and you're like, well, that's only useful to the internal people in your team that want a quick way of finding the listings. No buyer is typing in this random combination of letters and numbers and all you're doing is wasting valuable title real estate. Yeah, I think for huge brands, you could say, okay, well, that marketplace isn't really relevant to them, but mm-hmm. you don't want to dissuade someone from buying your product. And I think that quite a lot of the time, you know, if someone stumbles across that, you know, they're going to go, actually, that doesn't look, that's not how I perceive this brand, especially luxury brands, you know, just be like, that's not, that's not acceptable. It looks terrible. So what's a scalable way for a brand to take a leaf out of a private label seller's book when, you know, a brand that doesn't have 
less than 10 SKUs, they can't afford to spend a couple of hours every day tweaking their bullet points to figure out what's going to have the best value. How can a brand with hundreds or, or thousands or hundreds of thousands of SKUs effectively put that same amount of effort into their marketplace channels? Is, are there any tips that you've, that you've learned? So I think that quite often the brands that I've seen that do very well and have multiple um, you know, listings is about coming up with some sort of generic content you know, trying to have some fillers in there that give you credibility, you know, talk about the brand, talk about your point of difference, don't necessarily focus on the product, just talk about those things that, you know, let's say I know a guy that sells cable ties, which is very difficult to get a point of difference on, but actually they have thousands and thousands of SKUs, different length cable ties and stuff, but, you know, their competitors are just putting up one image of a black cable tie, you know, a pack of 100 cable ties and stuff. So he's loaded out his images in all of his listings on all marketplaces to contain information about, you know, where they're stored, the packaging, you know, how where they're manufactured, the fact that they all hold, let's say they all hold 100 kilograms of weight. Okay, we'll just put a 100 kilogram image about, you know, you know, describe really nicely, holding up something that, you know, everyone knows holds 100 kilograms and just using that as a generic content on all of those products. So trying to group them together to like-minded or similar products that you could use a more generic approach on. Obviously in time, you could do that initially and then you could go back and replace them individually. But it's trying to put in information there that doesn't necessarily talk about that product specifically, but can talk about your brand or that range of products. Mm, great tip. That's a really good idea. And I think it also speaks to being able to have granular data that can be reused in lots of different places, as opposed to taking the time to type a 125 character title for every single SKU. Yeah, definitely. So Eddie, I'm curious from your experience in the world of marketplaces that, as you said, predates me. I think I was in year eight as you were graduating and entering the world. So you've got a few years on me there. Where do you see it going next? At the moment, we're in a world where, as I said, we've got a lot of new marketplaces popping up left, right and center. We've got tools like ChatGPT, which is going to add a different perspective to the product search again, as we talked about with getting ranked in those top five soundbar type articles. Yeah, but I think that I think there's so much of, you know, you look at, so if you want to predict the future, you look at the past, don't you? And I think a really, really easy way, you know, let's take Amazon PPC, for example, and how that's evolved. If you want to know what's going to happen next or how that was going to, the last few years going to play out, you look at how Google PPC has changed over that period. I think that marketplace listings are a reincarnation of how, you know, the web evolved and general e-commerce, you know, direct, you know, true direct consumer websites evolved over a period you know you look at oh how you look at your google rank for example and you want to look at how amazon search algorithm is going to evolve over time it's going to evolve pretty much in the same way that google did and you know it's all about your backlinks your unique content your long content your engaging content and everything i think that that's the way that marketplace will evolve i think uh, you know as more marketplaces spring up i think the ones that don't have a niche will probably find it quite difficult because we've got a one-size-fits-all it's called mm -hmm. amazon you know even even 10 years ago when I worked at Play.com, you know, I said, you can't out Amazon, Amazon, you know, that's, they've got that sorted. You know, <laughs> I'm probably one of the best Eddie Lathams there are. Someone can't, someone can't outdo me on that, um, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, with these marketplaces, I think that these niche marketplaces, you know, you have a look at um, back market and stuff, specific, you know, specifically focusing on, on refurbished products, mm -hmm. which is interesting because 
you know, just talking about Amazon not being able to out Amazon, no one would be able to out Amazon. Amazon's attempt at selling refurbished products went disastrously yep. because they were trying to out eBay, eBay. And yet here comes back market and they've done a pretty good job of it. But then again, it's still focused on electronics. They're not yeah. selling old lawnmowers. And is that because eBay took them took their eye off their refurbished market, which I always thought was their bread and butter. And they tried to focus more on a catalog-based approach and trying to look at what Amazon were doing and trying to catch Amazon. Whereas I think actually they've got quite a beautiful business of unique products that maybe they didn't necessarily focus on. But I think it's difficult when you're top of your game and you want to see growth and you've got shareholders there. So I think the spoke marketplaces, you know, they're not on the high streets, the Etsy's, but even our Etsy to an extent by people coming up with more specific marketplaces for trinkets, let's say. So I think that those marketplaces will do very well. I can tell you from yeah. a technical perspective that Etsy is kind of shooting itself in the foot by making it so hard to integrate because they just... They don't, they make it very hard to get access to any kind of resources for partners to, or for would-be partners to be able to integrate. And we've got- Also the APIs and stuff are not great. Even when they work, that's the thing. Yeah. And even if you can get access, then it's, you know, how well do they work? But we've got a few sellers that would like to be selling on Etsy. They just, we can't help them because they just can't get a a connection going. So if there's anyone listening from Etsy, do get in touch. I think that any marketplace, you know, if you're starting out, any marketplace that revolves around browse as opposed to search, Amazon, you're selling search terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one browses Amazon. No one goes in and refines by category, which is why they've always done terribly in clothing because no one goes in and says, I'm going to look at trousers. I want black trousers. I want skinny black trousers. Yeah, but I'm a 32 leg and a 34 waist. God, I've just painted a picture of a short, dumpy guy in black trousers. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were, I thought you'd been looking at my browsing history. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that Amazon search term oriented, whereas other marketplaces where you do go in and browse, you're like, oh, Mother's Day gifts. Oh, yeah, Mother's Day gifts. That, oh, well, I'll look at the, the plastic flowers, the dried flowers or whatever it might be. I think that those marketplaces are key because they're ones that Amazon are not dominating. They're ones that Amazon, you know, don't present very well on clothing marketplaces. You know, the big one at the moment is these, you know, vintage uh, and secondhand clothing. You know, you look at, we actually talked before the call started about sustainability and stuff. I heard, just listened to a podcast the other day and I don't listen to a huge amount of podcasts, but about how those secondhand markets are due to outgrow fast fashion and by 2030 mm-hmm. um, you know the vintage market is going to be much much bigger so i mean what have they to, to use vintage as an example they've done two things they've harnessed it on a category that isn't dominated by marketplace clothing no one's really ever done that very well and they've also done the classic is going after refurbished you know mm-hmm. it's not refurbished in this instance but it's secondhand it's secondhand clothing and it's and it's also not consumer to consumer i think is a big thing because there are there's other consumer to consumer marketplaces that have that same focus but the fact that vintage actually becomes a real marketplace so to say almost a real sales channel for brands that are looking at selling their out of line stuff or their bewares or their returns or, or whatever it might be that they can actually have a professional selling experience or, or excuse me that a consumer can have a professional buying experience and they're not just as you said as you described with the old days of ebay they're not just transferring some money on PayPal and hoping that the random guy in random city on the other side of the country actually sends the package. They're buying from real businesses. Yeah. And look at the, I mean, it's a nightmare for catalog. Yeah. You know, there's condition in there. There's size, the returns are horrendous. There's so many things that it's just going to say, okay, well, that's not going to work. But, you know, we're in, we're in the advanced stage of marketplace development. If you want to make, if you want to make a true indent in that and make a marketplace that's successful, you're going to have to overcome all those things. Mm-hmm. I think that's where, you know, the growth has got to come from, not just another eBay, you know, another Amazon. You've got to focus in on the bits that don't work on those marketplaces for these new marketplaces and really make 
um, make that work, you know, either through managed returns or, you know, something that works amazingly. On the sustainability aspect, you've also got marketplaces like Avocado Store here in Germany and Canopy or Canopy, I don't know how you pronounce it, in the UK is one that's supposed to be launching soon, focused on sustainable brands. And that's something I think that's also interesting because then it's for people that don't necessarily want to buy something secondhand or refurbished. You know, I, I personally prefer to buy my underwear new, but I would like the to buy it from a brand that, that's embedded. The issue that I foresee with that is that for some, because Amazon could go quite easily and they could retrofit a sustainable section. So for someone to go to a specifically sustainable marketplace, they'd have to ask one of two things. Is that maybe the brands only sell on that marketplace, which when you're starting up is quite a difficult thing to ask people. Or there would have to be, the people that are going to shop on that marketplace would have to be very anti-Amazon. I was about to say, and I think that's kind of the nature of the beast there though, because an electronics marketplace... Sorry? I think already people are anti-Amazon. I think that there's a big movement, you know, deliberately not buy from Amazon, which I completely get. I don't think it's in the interest of the consumer, Amazon, someone that's in the slightest. Yeah, Um, but I think if you're, you know, when you're looking at the electronics world, if you were going to, if you were looking at the same pair of headphones and it was available on on Amazon and Kaufland or MediaMarkt, an electronics marketplace in Germany, and it was available at the exact same price, someone who's slightly anti-Amazon would probably go for one of the other marketplaces. But with a sustainability focus, the that drive is a lot greater. So it might even be more expensive. The same product mm-hmm. might be more expensive on the sustainability marketplace, but they might think, you know what, I'll pay that extra euro or two or pound or two because that's money that's not going into Amazon's pocket. And that- For me, I would buy from a marketplace where I feel more connected with the seller. Mm-hmm. I think that that whole, I think that Amazon... Amazon underwriting is saying, oh, you return the product to us and stuff, I think is fine. You know, that's a very, very reassuring thing for the customer. But I actually think that now I think that being more connected with the person that's selling it is quite getting getting to be more important with consumers. Because now we've now we're au fait with consumer rights acts. You can return anything you like. I think that these are the, you know, either D2C websites or more D2C marketplaces. I think people now accept that they're going to take the product back anyway. You don't need to be behind um, the guarantee of Amazon to do that. So mm-hmm. I think that the connection with the seller, I think, is is very important. And I think nice. that we pay so heavily, you know, through Amazon and, and, and the fees and stuff for that protection is that that's all getting passed on to the seller now. Mm. But that's a nice thing with, with other marketplaces in general. For example, with eBay, where you have the option to negotiate on, on some items, you know, you can make an offer. You've also got AI tools like Nibble, where you can even implement those sorts of functionalities onto your onto your Shopify store that you can let consumers make an offer for a product. And then you get that kind of interaction. Any opportunity for a consumer to interact with the brand is worthwhile. And marketplaces, there are marketplaces that enable that, which I think is also a nice way of doing it. And, and also from the brand perspective, there are marketplaces where they support you as a seller and it's not just dealing with some random seller support person 50 times until you finally get that product listed in the right category. You know, you end up with people working on your behalf in the back end of the marketplace to help you succeed on these new channels. And there's the obvious, you know, being able to shop social media, you know, such a, you know, such a, an obvious one that I think yep. will grow massively, you know, buying directly from the brand through those channels. Um, however that might be, or buying even from the retailer through those channels. You know, you look at user-generated content and how prominent that's becoming. And mm-hmm. we're not talking about the influencer anymore, are we? We're talking about, you know, the man on the street, the person on the street, and how they interact with the products and stuff. Being almost as a review, you know, you look at Amazon trying to integrate video reviews and stuff. There's nothing better than someone who's a genuine shopper reviewing a product on Amazon, YouTube, or wherever it is, and making that directly shoppable so mm-hmm. you don't lose the click-off and the conversion. It mm-hmm. seems like you know, quite an obvious way that things will go. 
All right, Eddie, let's bring it home. I think this has been a really good conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm excited to see how majority continues to grow because I think there's a, as you said, there's a lot of opportunity still to, to get the product into more than the 3 million homes you've already reached. And hopefully some of those will be outside of the UK as well. Cool. Yeah, thank you too. In spite of how much he's achieved and how much he's built, Eddie is honestly one of the most down-to-earth people you could hope to meet. Alongside their award-winning business ventures, Eddie and his team are also real assets to their local area, from supporting local sports teams to donating radios to provide the lonely and isolated members of their community with entertainment during the COVID lockdowns. Eddie even completed the London Marathon in less than three hours, raising money for a Cambridge-based mental health charity, the Cogwheel Trust. In addition to doing what they can to sell old and refurbished products on platforms like Backmarket, many new product developments are also helping to bring an arm of sustainability into the generally unsustainable consumer electronics industry, particularly with their new biodegradable earbuds. This is a person and a business that is worth supporting. So I'm really grateful for Eddie to take the time to come onto the podcast and I hope you appreciated it too. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to listen into Marketplace Jungle. I'll see you next time.